the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What matters most to you? Things of this earth or the one to come? We'll answer that question next on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor, Gary Wagner. What is it that commands your life and your attention? Things of this world or the things of heaven? You see, that's at the heart of this passage we have before us here in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. It's called The Rich Young Ruler, and we have plenty of lessons to learn from this young man's life. Please join us. From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's edition of Abounding Grace. The conversation between Christ and this young man will never be forgotten. It always seems to stimulate serious thought, lengthy discussions, and sometimes hot debates. If you think about this story as you read it, it can be somewhat troubling because it is so concise. You want Jesus to say more to this young man than is recorded here. It is so brief, and it is so challenging to our views of God and our views of life, and it is so overwhelmingly weighty in its demands upon us. Every time I read it, and it may be true for you as well, there seems to be more here than I had seen before. There are two characters in the story, Jesus and the rich young ruler. Jesus was coming from blessing the little children, and an eager young man runs up to him that we call the rich young ruler. And he knelt before Christ in deep respect. This young man was very wealthy, was highly successful, a prominent and influential ruler, an official in the local synagogue, which means that he was a man of high reputation. His behavior was morally excellent. He said he kept God's law from his youth. He owned much property, Luke says, but the truth is that his property owned him. He was deeply troubled about his eternal destiny, about his relationship with God. And that is our first character. The second character, the young uh, ruler called Rabbi, good teacher, who is, of course, Jesus. He is presented in the Gospel of Luke as the Lord's Christ, who is Christ the Lord, who came to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke consistently refers to Jesus as the Lord, who can infallibly read the hearts of men, and who does things that only God can do, like still storms and forgive sins. So the person whom the young man knelt before was much more than just simply 
a good teacher that the young man thought him to be. He was nothing less than God incarnate. The rich young ruler was face to face with a person who was fully God and fully man, the only Savior of the world. Now, it's important to notice the context in Luke where the story takes place. The story of the rich young ruler immediately follows the account of Jesus receiving and blessing the little children, which immediately followed the parable of the publican and the Pharisees. And beloved, it is no accident that these three stories are clustered together because together they all teach a similar lesson. Salvation and life in the kingdom of God are free gifts from God, not things that can be earned or achieved or purchased by man. And bringing these three stories together throws even a greater emphasis on this fundamental point. The little children that surrounded and sat on his lap were recipients, not earners of life and salvation. And if you remember through this story, Jesus is teaching us that no one enters the kingdom of God except as an infant enters into the world, helpless, laying aside all self-trust and self-love and self-esteem and self-righteousness and casting himself totally upon the mercy of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And no sooner than Jesus said, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. This young man appears on the scene and he is determined to buy or earn his way into the kingdom. He is fully confident that he has the resources to do so. He believes that all that is lacking in his life is Jesus' formula for salvation and life. Now, there's a series of questions that this young man asks and Jesus responds to. So we're going to begin with that first question. Look at verse 16. What good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? That question reveals a self-confident attitude in contrast to Jesus' statement that a person must become like a little baby in total helplessness to enter the kingdom of God. This rich man's question reveals that he thought goodness is defined by human achievement. What is good is what man can achieve. Jesus' answer to him forces him to recognize that his only hope is total dependence on God, who alone gives eternal life to the undeserving. He asked Jesus the question, what good things, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life, because he thinks Jesus has discovered that one good thing that one must do to get eternal life. And he wants to do the same thing. As many rich people, this rich young ruler was accustomed to getting what he wanted. He was accustomed to achieving whatever he desired. It never occurred to him that the thing he desired, eternal life, could not be obtained for the right price. He came to Jesus fully prepared to pay whatever price was required. It seemed to him an easy thing to buy or earn eternal life, just as he had bought everything else he had ever wanted. 
And it was Jesus' painful task to reveal to this young man the shallowness of his perspective, to open his eyes to the true nature of eternal life, and to make clear to him that what he thought was so easy to obtain was to be had at only a great price, which a young man might be willing or might not be willing to pay, a price that he might not even find possible to pay. It was Jesus' task to drive home to the consciousness of this rich young ruler and to those who were listening all around him. The point he had already made when he blessed the children and he said, you must recognize your helplessness and your dependence upon God's grace to be my disciples. Well, Jesus' answer to him was, keep the law. What good thing must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus' answer was simple and forthright. Keep the commandments of God. And then the young man asks, which ones? And then Jesus answers him with a list of commands. And then the young man says in verse 20, all these things I have kept. I have done all these things. What am I still lacking? The young man's answer reveals a deep-seated self-righteousness. Without even blinking an eye, he tells Jesus that the law of God holds no terror to him whatsoever. As far as he is concerned, he has met the demands of the law of God, and they will not condemn him. This impulsive reply indicates that he did make the law of God the norm of his behavior. And he's confident that he has adequately fulfilled all the law's demands. And yet, his question also suggests that behind the facade of security and self-righteousness, his heart had lost much of its certainty about his salvation with God. Now let's look at Jesus' answer to the young man. In verse 17, in an answer to this young man's question, what good things must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. Now, do you find anything here troubling about Jesus' words? There are a couple things troubling. If you're really thinking about Jesus' answer, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one good. But if you wish to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. What is Jesus doing here first? He is instructing the young man. Their worlds are quite different. Their worldviews are quite different. For Jesus, goodness is not something man achieves, an accomplishment. Goodness is defined by the revealed will of God in biblical law. Only God for Jesus is perfectly good, and goodness in human behavior is not based on one's subjectivity or on a consensus of opinion. Goodness is rather defined by divinely revealed moral absolutes, which are rooted in the character of God. God is the only one who is good. He is goodness itself, and He has revealed the eternal rule of good and bad, of right and wrong for all of mankind in His law, which is the only true standard of goodness. And 
by which all, by which standard of all of us in this room will someday be judged. So Jesus is pointing out to this young man in unforgettable words that biblical law, divinely revealed moral absolutes, are given by God to inform us as to what is pleasing to him. So he bids the young man to not look anywhere else for the way to obtain eternal life except in God's revealed will found only in the Bible. Now, what is the point Jesus is making when he answers this young man? Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. He is setting the God of the Bible in contrast with all other sources, all other standards, all other definitions of goodness. It is to God and His revealed will in the Bible and not to anyone else that we are to go to learn how to live a good life forever. Only God has the right and the authority to declare the standards of goodness and the terms of eternal life. And He has told us time and again in the Bible, I am the Lord. Beside me, there is no God. Because he is the one true and living God, who is the creator of the universe, there can only be one absolute, unchanging law to which all people in all ages and in all situations are accountable. And for Jesus, that one law is written down in the Bible alone. Now, what's troubling about this verse why are you asking me what is good? There is only one who is good. It seems on the surface that Jesus is saying, I'm not good, or else I'm not God. And then it seems to say later on that you obtain eternal life by keeping the commandments of God. And both of those thoughts should be a little troublesome, unless you really think through them. In no way is this statement, why are you asking about what is good? There is only one who is good in a mission that Christ was not always good. Although some people have tried to interpret this as Jesus confessing sin. They say, Jesus is saying, I haven't been good all my life, so don't ask me about goodness. Or, I'm not God, so don't ask me about goodness. Liberals have actually used this text to try and prove that Jesus wasn't good or wasn't God. But in no way does this statement set God in contrast with Jesus, as some have tried to show. As if Jesus is claiming here not to be as good as God, or alleging sin, or denying God. And I could go into the reason for why he's not saying that in, with the Greek syntax and grammar. But let me simply say that the Greek in this text cannot sustain and does not sustain a contrast between Jesus and God. If you were to read this passage of Scripture in Greek, you would know it does not. There is no way that it can be setting forth a contrast between Jesus and a good God. Rather, Jesus is not contrasting himself with God. He is only, in the most emphatic way, pointing to God and his law as the unique source of the law of life. Benjamin Warfield said, The search for a master good enough 
To lead, leave, lead me men to life finds its end in God and His commandments. Unquote. What must I do to obtain eternal life? Keep the commandments of God. Only God can spell out what is good. And only God can spell out the terms by which a person receives eternal life. So then in response to the young man's question, which ones of, of the commandments am I supposed to keep? Jesus says this in Matthew 19, 18 as his response. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not be a false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus very simply points him to the law of God in the Bible, and in effect, says Warfield, dispelling the implication that eternal life can be based on anything but that complete righteousness reflected in God's law, and thereby suggesting that it was not instruction in righteousness that the young man needed, but the power of a new life. For without that life, you cannot have righteousness. Young man, you know these laws backwards and forwards. You were raised to believe them and understand them. What you need is not more laws. What you need, in essence, is the power of a new life. Jesus is not implying at all that obeying God's law merits or earns eternal life. It's quite the contrary. Throughout the teachings of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament, along with the Old Testament, Christ is not taking into consideration what human, being, what human beings are able to do. He doesn't say, keep the commandments, thinking they are able to do it. He is concerned with what they are commanded to do by God. Here is what God has commanded. He's not talking about ability or lack of ability to obey. That's not the point. He is saying, I want you to know what God commands of you, whether you can do it or not, is another issue. But here's what God commands, as in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 30, where he said, I have set before you life and death, the blessings and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. That relationship with God is first before obedience can come. Here's the point he is making. If a person perfectly obeys all God's commands from his heart, from birth to death, he will most certainly obtain eternal life. But such a person does not exist. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not even one. Now the law that in the Garden of Eden was intended to give us life curses us and condemns us for our self-love and self-righteousness. And we must first be broken by that law and then come to Christ for the free gift of life and salvation and righteousness that then makes us acceptable with God. No, was an, no one is accounted as righteous with God unless he perfectly fulfills God's law, which is absolutely impossible. So then convinced of his weakness, a person must come to faith in Christ who has not only died for us to pay the penalty for our sins, but who lived a perfect life of righteousness for us that we might offer to God his death and his life in the place of our own. 
and thereby be accepted in his beloved. By the way, notice this curious listing of law in Matthew's account. In Acts 18, in verse 18, he says, Which one should I obey? Jesus said, You shall not commit a murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your mother and your father, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's so curious about this? Well, the first five of these laws are taken from the second table of the law of God, which teach us how to love other people. So when we take these commandments from the second table, we show a great deal about our character and the way we treat other people. But then that sixth one. I mean, the first five are right out of the Ten Commandments. And then he throws in, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why is that? Well, that is a case law from Leviticus 19.18. So here he puts the big ones, the Ten Commandments and the case laws all in the same package. And he's saying, in effect, that we're bound to obey the entirety of God's moral laws, not only those we prefer to obey, as God said in Deuteronomy 4, you will not add to the word which I am com commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. Then we come to Jesus' next response to this young man. He's answering the young man after the young man says that he has obeyed all these laws. So what is the one thing that is still lacking? You see, he was still uncertain about his relationship with God. He says, I've obeyed all of these, which of course was not the truth. But there still seems to be something out of place, something lacking. And here is Jesus' response in verse 21. If you wish to be complete or mature, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now, here's another strange way of answering this man's question. What is the young man concerned with? What must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus says, okay, if you wish to be mature and complete, this young man wasn't even thinking about maturity. He wasn't concerned about moral completion. He was concerned with how he could live forever. But the point Jesus is making as he gives his response is, if you don't desire to attain Christian maturity, there is no use asking me about eternal life. If you don't want to live a morally complete life, don't talk to me about eternal life. And complete Christian character and life cannot exist, beloved, without complete devotion to Christ himself. Supreme devotion to Christ produced by total inward transformation is the one thing the young man lacked. And now Jesus goes on to explain the devotion and the transformation that is necessary in detail. Notice the demands he lays on this young man. He says, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. First thing Christ demands, as we have seen in other situations in Luke, is self 
abandonment. If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions. Now, when Jesus said this to this young man, he was putting his finger right on the chief sin of that young man's heart. He knew his heart, of course. And that is why he said what he said to him, Do you want to be mature? Go and sell all of your possessions. And what was it in that young man's heart that Jesus saw? He saw that he worshipped two things. He worshipped his possessions and his wealth, and he worshipped his ability to acquire wealth and possessions. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. That's four zero eight eight six six five six zero seven. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB. That stands for Post Mailbox Number four zero two fourteen eighty four Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is nine five zero three two. Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408-866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. Mm-hmm.